0: It's the New Books and Food Podcast. Hi, this is Alan Salkin. I'm hosting New Books and Food. Uh, this week, we're talking to Dr. Jamie Kaufman, about her book, Acid Reflux Diet. Um, it is a hugely important topic, and Dr. Kaufman is a iconoclast in this field who is either way, way, way ahead of the game or is so controversial that nobody else believes what she's saying. Um, and she's helped a lot of notable people. I'm going to just quickly read something from one of the introductions, uh, the prefaces by Dr. Max Gomez to this book, which is, he says, Millions of Americans are taking medications they don't need and suffering from symptoms they shouldn't have. And so this book and and Dr. Kaufman's uh, unusual treatment um, for acid reflux um, and all of the other kinds of reflux that she defines are um, potentially life-saving for a lot of people And I'm a, I'm, this is not an infomercial I'm a, just a journalist like always um, I've tried some of these methods and we're going to talk about that during this interview Dr. Kaufman, thank you for making the time to do this today I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time
1: this is a pleasure, and I'm very, very looking forward to talking
0: with you about this. And I promise our listener she's going to sound better than she just sounded right there because it's going to, her voice is going to improve. Um, I'm, I have to say also I'm nervous that I'm going to cough and I'm going to, like, wheeze or something, and you're going to think that I'm, you know, you're going to diagnose me, and maybe that's a good thing. So l- let me just ask you the, the first thing that I want to know, which is what's so damn bad about chocolate?
1: Well, chocolate is, there, first of all, there are many different reasons why a person can have reflux. And some groups of foods, specific foods with specific chemicals in them, um, actually cause reflux by causing, hold on one second, by lowering the lower esophageal sphincter. So there's a valve called the lower esophageal sphincter that joins the stomach and the esophagus. And so refluxes backflow from the from the stomach. So one of the mechanisms of reflux is when that valve relaxes. And certain chemicals relax it. For example, caffeine and nicotine will relax it. In chocolate, there are several things, and so it's a key trigger food, not for everybody, but for many people. First of all, it has a, it has relatively high fat, at least milk chocolate. Fat is one of the things that makes the valve relax, which is why a big, heavy, high-fat meal is associated with reflux. So chocolate has fat in it. Secondly, it has caffeine in it. And third, it has theobromine. And theobromine, all three of these things work on the valve. So for many people, not everyone, but for many people, when I had bad reflux, my reflux could be under control for two weeks, and I would have one piece of chocolate (laughs) And it was like someone had uh, put an ignition cap to a stick of dynamite, and I was off to the races. So, chocolate for some people is a big trigger food. Not everyone, and probably dark chocolate's better than milk chocolate.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny because. Um i literally don't know that i can write without chocolate and so it's like um it's a big challenge for me because i've been you know trying some of your things but let's uh bring people in a little bit uh, more background which is um define you know ask what is acid reflux and what is what are the other you also in this book come up with a term or or introduce a term called respiratory reflux What, what are the various things that we're talking about here
1: well, let me begin by saying that the, um, the medical model, the medical establishment's model of reflux is dead wrong. That we spend $100 billion a year to get it wrong. And so the, this, there is a backstory, and the backstory most people aren't aware of. The evolution of medical specialties is relatively recent. In the 70s, in the mid 70s, there were only 700 gastroenterologists. Um, and these beautiful endoscopes came out. And today, there are 21,000 gastroenterologists. So we've had a 30-fold increase in gastroenterologists. In ENT or otolaryngology, there's been a 14% increase over the course of the last 40 years. So what happened was, in my opinion, the gastroenterologists hijacked reflux. They took the most obvious symptom symptoms, heartburn, indigestion, and they said, reflux is heartburn, heartburn is reflux, it's esophageal, and we own it. As a consequence, we've spent $1.5 trillion, that's with a T, in the last 40 years, and during that time, on the GI watch, reflux has increased 400% esophageal cancer cancer which presumably they're looking for has increased 800 percent the fastest growing cancer in america in terms of its incidence the uh, whole question of uh, of safety joan rivers i'm not even going to talk about is is huge so what's happened is the gi doctors have been the go-to doctors for reflux so when a A lung doctor, a pulmonologist, an ENT, an allergist says, I think this patient might have reflux. The patient has an endoscopy, gets put on a purple pill, and the presumption is that the the GI doctor can determine whether a patient has reflux. It turns out... Um, I've been taking care of the most difficult reflux patients in the nation for almost 40 years now. People with respiratory problems, people with bad lungs, people with asthma that isn't asthma, people who have had multiple sinus surgeries. And as it turns out, at least in my population of patients, only 10% have heartburn as the chief complaint, which means the other 90% have other symptoms and generally speaking, if you stick a scope in the esophagus and say they don't have reflux, it means nothing. And so as a consequence, the entire population is, re- is at risk for reflux. Respiratory reflux is bigger than heartburn. And so this has created a huge public health issue. And, yeah, a lot of it's related to diet and lifestyle.
0: Right. And you talk about in the in the book and in other interviews that, Diet soda um, or soda, the the addition of um, acidic preservatives um, and obviously just, you know, a higher fat diet and and also sugar um, are some of the reasons that um, this is, you know, increased. And and I also think, you know, I am a foodie and I I thought something you wrote about, you know, there's a little – uh, piece in the book about a group of foodies going out to dinner at eight and, you know, basically finishing around midnight. And, it, you know, you kind of say that within a few years, some of those people will be dead from from this disease or at least will be wheezing. And, um, you know, for my part, I'm on a CPAP machine, which really has made a difference. But we'll talk about that later, maybe. Um, and so it is it is incredibly and I, it almost seems to me uh, eating Anything like a normal diet or even what a foodie would consider a good diet is going to um, land you with one of these diseases that you're talking about. I mean (laughs) almost everybody I know has it.
1: Well, let me back up for a minute and, and make a couple of other points that I think are, are iconoclastic. Uh, the first thing is that reflux doesn't come in one form and one stage. So most people who are in trouble with their symptoms, whether it's sinuses or sleep apnea, by the way, sleep apnea, big association with long-standing nighttime or nocturnal reflux. But reflux does have different stages. And one of the reasons why we do reflux testing at the Voice Institute is because we're interested in the question of what is working and what isn't working. So let me just sort of make up a story. The more your reflux... Your lower valve gets inflamed and stops working. So the more you reflux, the more you reflux. Now you reflux enough so your esophageal function, the esophagus is the tube that connects the throat and the stomach, the esophageal function becomes impaired. Now when you lie down, essentially the esophagus looks like Lake Michigan, which I think is a good visual. And then the upper valve, which is really uh, the main barrier to keep stuff out of the respiratory tract, and the respiratory tract the ear, nose, throat, vocal cords you know bronchial tubes lungs that then so then what happens is when you lie down at night the esophagus is like lake michigan and the respiratory tract is like lake superior and often people don't have symptoms unless they wake up in the middle of the night you know coughing or with uh, breathing problems or even with heartburn many people sleep through it and then they wake up the next day and they have all these symptoms and by the way um, this whole process, as I've described, it is reversible for most people for 90 yeah. 90- why, why why
0: you've been doing this a long time. you've had some you know great testimonials from from uh, you know celebrities even which of course in America means everything. And, um, but why aren't you being heard and why you know I, I want to see. Um you know, I got I got scoped in my primary care doctor's office shortly after the Joan Rivers thing, you know, and I, I hate being, uh, you know, anesthetized, and um, uh, you know, and then I talked to the doctor, and of course, the the very doctor who's giving me who's doing the endoscopy is himself popping. Purple pills all the time, and I'm like, "Well, this
1: yeah, is the answer." Is it's all about money. We have a technology that I introduced in 1999 called transnasal esophagoscopy. It's done with an ultra thin, in a comfortable patient. The scope is actually inside the patient, usually less than five minutes. I mean, there's prep and explaining and going through the reviewing the exam and all that, but the transnasal esophagoscopy technology is, no, without question, should replace uh, sedated esophagogastroduodenoscopy or EGD. There's no question. If you ask gastroenterologists why they don't do it, they don't do it because they don't make enough.
0: But Can you see Barrett's esophagus with your medicine?
1: I would argue that my method is much more accurate. For every three patients who come to me with Barrett's esophagus, two of them don't have it. At the risk of being really um, controversial, the way the biopsies are done by many gastroenterologists is the problem. They use a large cup forceps. They're told to take multiple four-quarter biopsies. So after the first biopsy, there's blood everywhere in the field, and they go snip, 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 snip. And if they get a little low, then it's going to look like Barrett's. When we do transnasal esophagoscopy, the patient is awake, and you see the swallow, and the valve presents itself, and you can see exactly uh, where the biopsy should be taken, and the precision of the technology we use, in my opinion, is much better. So we have a better technology, a safer technology, a more accurate technology, a well-tolerated technology, and it's a technology that the patient doesn't even lose any time from work, right?
0: Are, are insurance companies covering it?
1: Absolutely. But guess what the gastroenterologists did? They went to CMS, which is the who sets the Medicare rates, mm-hmm. The gastroenterologists who don't do transnasal esophagoscopy went to CMS and had the reimbursement for transnasal esophagoscopy. Said, "Oh, let's review all these endoscopies." Reduced. They had it reduced so they wouldn't have competition, and so people wouldn't want to do it. Uh, the, the doctors are entrepreneurs in, in general, and, yeah. and 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 so what's happening now is that there is pressure for transnasal esophagoscopy from, from patients everywhere. I get emails. Is Who's doing it in Portland, Oregon? Who's doing it in Austin, Texas? And the answer is most of the time, no one. And the reason why this technology has not exploded is because there's no one doctor willing to do it. The gastroenterologists don't want to do it. They own surgery centers. They make a lot of money on the facility fees. It's a huge conflict of interest. So the answer to the question you've raised is um, a massive one. Um, I think, in my at least in my opinion, uh, the uh, you want to know want to hear a bottom line. Uh, we, we've done, I think, about three hundred million sedated endoscopies, gastroenterologists since um, uh, nineteen seventy five. If you look at the. The death rates, which is the smallest death rate reported in literature is 14 per hundred thousand. And there's some that say it's as high as 70 per hundred thousand. If that's the case, more people have lost their lives having sedated endoscopies than died in the Vietnam War. So, you know, the question, and they, and they don't get reported as deaths from endoscopies. You know, they have a heart attack, and they go in the hospital, and, you know, something happens, and they pass away, and, and nobody says that. So the answer is that the technology, the structure, and the, the whole way that, that uh, specialties police themselves. By the way, do you know the gastroenterologists do not? A video record their examinations mm-hmm. i've recorded every examination of mine uh, since 1978 um, it's archived it can be reviewed and if you ask again if you ask gastroenterologists why don't you record them the answer is that they don't want scrutiny they don't want sure scrutiny.
0: they want to get sued
1: so so the answer is you've got a massively powerful group of doctors who who claim to be reflux doctors who don't do a very good job taking care of of reflux.
0: What's the worst um, sort of – do you get attacked at conferences? I
1: don't actually. You know, it's really sort of amazing. I'll tell you what happens is I get marginalized. Here's an example. Um, the, I know all the opinion leaders in gastroenterology. It's a long story, and it's a good story, but it's a long one. But I know the opinion leaders. So one of the opinion leaders in gastroenterology put a course on at the Marriott Marquis about, I don't know, I think it was in December. Okay? So I contacted him, and I said, you know, you know do you want me to talk about, about respiratory reflux? And the answer is, we've already invited somebody. Who did they invite? They invited somebody who knows nothing about it. They, they literally invited an otolaryngologist who was going to do a literature view. That, to me, is a specialty that's circling the wagons.
0: You know, and, and there's another aspect here which you talk about. It's on page five of your book, which is that... It, you know, the old um, belief that you can't trust the patient, the patient just wants a pill, you know, the the same reason that everyone's popping for years antibiotics, you write in the book the belief shared by doctors and patients appears to be that patients are non-compliant and unwilling to change just give me a pill, demands the patient or better yet, a surgical procedure to end my reflux, but patients need help understanding that unhealthy lifestyles cause disease and the change is possible so what you're suggesting in the book isn't not you know it may take as fast as two weeks but it's not as and, and I'll tell you it is you have to really get your head behind okay I'm not gonna go I'm, not, I'm gonna eat something different for two weeks and, and it it's,
1: bigger a- than that. it's bigger than that listen look, here's what's happened the, in our lifetimes the food industry has made us sick okay it wasn't like this. Okay, everyone didn't eat at 8.30, and people didn't drink, you know, the equivalent of, you know, 16, 6-ounce cans or whatever, Mm 8-ounce cans of of, of soda a day. We didn't didn't eat like this. The the food industry uh, is very much responsible for, I mean, the diabetes and obesity and sleep apnea and asthma and reflux epidemics are all the same epidemic. Mm -hmm. You know, add sugar, add fat, add late-night eating, add all these variables – Throw in—it's um, not called dropping acid for nothing. That first book, <laughs> but so. But when you add all of these things in my lifetime, the the, the healthcare industry made us poor, and they're essentially in collusion with. Uh, there was an article. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal recently saying that it was much, much more efficient to do bariatric surgery for obesity than try to get patients to change their ways. Mm. My experience, and so let me just pause and take a breath. If it weren't for the fact that my patients not only stop refluxing but graduate, I look them in the eye and I say, my goal for you is not to need me a year from now, not to need medicine, and for you to live a long, healthy life. Longevity is the long-term goal. And the kind of changes that you make are a bit like opening Pandora's box. You'll always have to think about food, what you eat and what. It and that unfortunately is a paradigm shift.
0: Yeah, and I, 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 I well, let me t- take that as a jumping-off point for a second to, to take a left turn, which is to talk about you for a second and how you, you know, you, you are a, a great iconoc- iconoclast, and you seem, you know, very bold and courageous and willing to take on this industry. Um, and you know, you, you you're making a good living at it, and you've put out successful books, but how? How did you get in this game, and how did you figure out this other way of doing it?
1: First of all, thank you for asking that question. I'll tell you the story. It's wonderful. Um, I was going to be a general surgeon because I had two uncles who were general surgeons. And when I went, uh, I went to Boston University because my uncle went there, and I heard this guy was doing laser surgery. Dr. Strong was doing laser surgery. And I went and I saw uh, a young man had come from uh, New York, uh, with the growths on his vocal cords, he was singing in the, in the hair. It was that era, hair. Uh, it was in the 70s. And uh, this was done... There, can you imagine a mass of, we didn't see 50-inch screens, but on a big screen TV, the vocal cords looking two, two feet long with every little vessel you could see, and the surgery was done with precision with no cutting in the neck. The patient woke up and basically could be discharged. So we were doing outpatient vocal cord surgery in patients' who had throat problems that had never been done before. There were only two lasers in the country. When I finished my residency in 1978, I had the fourth CO2 laser in the United States. I went to Wake Forest University and they said, we'll give you whatever, we, whatever you need. I put together an anesthesia team to manage the difficult airways. We did children with respiratory papillomas. That's a terrible disease. We did people with cancers. We did all kinds of work. And I very aggressively went after uh, uh, the difficult patient. And so what happened, by 1981, I had a practice, and I was seeing all the people that had complications. And I began to see people who had complications, who had things in common. They had inflammation and swelling in the in, in their voice box. And so at that point, it was 1986 or 85, I said, let's put a pH probe in the throat, an acid-measuring device. The gastroenterologist said, there's nothing in the throat. I said, there's something in the throat. So he put the pH probes in the throat, and sure enough, all the patients that had inflammation that were having complications, that were doing poorly, had reflux, and so we put, we started doing double probe pH monitoring. Today, now, uh, how many years later is this? Thirty something years. Almost nobody is using this technology, and so we're still looking. We, if you go buy yourself a, a, a expensive pH meter. That's the chip we're using. We're using an ISFET chip to measure acidity. So what happened is I began to look at this patient population systematically. And it wasn't enough just to look at the patients. And we reported all these things. We reported respiratory uh, problems in children and how many of them had reflux. We, We documented it. We looked at these things in the laboratory. And then finally... I had a basic science laboratory, so we looked at the impact of acid and pepsin on the larynx as well as the esophagus. And what we found and what we are finding is that the basic enzyme, pepsin, which is the main stomach enzyme, is what causes damage in tissue everywhere. It's not acid. So it really is peptic esophagitis, peptic laryngitis. The key is pepsin requires acid activation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So to make a long story short, I've looked at the epidemiology. I've looked at the outcomes. I've looked at the diagnostic technology, and I've looked at the cell biology, and I feel that this paradigm is going to require a restructuring of medical specialties and a restructuring of healthcare. care. And, and the whole purpose really should be, and when you say this, everyone wants to go, duh, should be health maintenance and disease prevention. And there are ways to do this that make sense to people. Before I finish this sort of refrain, (laughs) uh, I I, want to say to you, if it weren't for the fact that most of my patients get well, then I would be a crazy person. But the fact that I have patients who get well, um, and I'm going to tell one story, and it's it's a great story. Keep
0: going. I love it. You sound great.
1: A young man came to see me with a tracheotomy in, 20-something, young. He was one of the top athletes in the state of North Carolina. He was going to be a kicker for the University of North Carolina. He could kick the ball 60 yards. Meanwhile, by the time they were getting ready to start training and he graduated from school, in that three months, he ended up with a tracheotomy in his throat. And he had a disease called relapsing polychondritis, which is an autoimmune disease in which your body attacks your cartilages. The nose is often involved. The ears involved, and in the worst, the larynx and the airway. <laughs> so this 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 kid has a tracheotomy in place, and he comes to see me. He's being taken care of at Duke and at Mayo Clinic. Okay, so he's got the best. Right. And I look at him and I say, Ward. This disease is a slow, indolent disease. It's not a progressive disease. You must have reflux to accelerate this. The combination, it's like fighting fire with water in one hose and gasoline in the other. So I tested him for reflux using this new technology, and he had terrible reflux. I said, you need to go have surgery for reflux. There are very few people who need surgery, but you need surgery. At the time, they had to open the belly up, and they wrapped the stomach around the esophagus, and they can stop it. And in truth, um, both, both Mayo Clinic and, and Duke uh, uh, told him not to do it. Mm. He had the surgery, stopped his reflux, and after he's had a tracheotomy in for two years, three months later, I took it out. This man, it's now 20 years later. They were going to do a stem cell. They had told him he was going to die. He does not recognize reflux as the major confounding variable in this patient's care. This man is, uh, is extremely successful. He's recently got married. He runs a program. Uh, and uh, uh, so the, the idea uh, that, that reflux uh, is, and by the way, I was, I was, getting, I was getting gassed today. And the car in front of me, there was this man with oxygen Mm. on his nose carrying his little thing as he was. And I listened to him. This wet, we. There's no. Only reflux can produce this profound kind of change in a rapid fashion. So, last thing about this. In New York right now, on New York One, they have an ad Mm. that shows, I think. uh, someone coughing in the middle of a night and it's a young person and says, you know, if you've got COPD, if you're not smoking and you've got COPD, it's reflux. So what I'm saying to you is I've taken care of these patients now from everywhere for a long period of time and the, and the outcomes, uh, particularly a case like wards, are so dramatic that it is, uh, the, the if you will, the exception that proves the rule.
0: To, to to um to get treated by you yourself, it costs what, like five grand?
1: It depends. Okay, just so you should know. And I, I, I'm not proud of being in private practice. I'm semi-retired. I can't retire. I'll never retire. People like <laughs> yeah. When you when you drop dead, you retired. Yes. Yeah. But but in other words, I I would I would become a full time writer with the idea being that you know these changes will not occur likely in my lifetime. The ones that I think are important, integrated aerodigestive medicine is the name of the field. Integrated Aero, meaning the airway and the respiratory tract, digestive medicine. It's one system. I practice integrated aerodigestive medicine. So these ideas are ideas that are that are difficult. So if you ask me, what what do I do? The answer is I am expensive, and people do come to see me from all over. On the other hand, being in private practice. I do have the ability to, to to charge what I want, meaning none. So a young woman came to see me last week. She desperately needs me. She could I barely hear, uh, handle the, the bus fare to come to see me, and uh, and, and I and, and, and from, from upstate New York. And I told her, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take whatever whatever you can afford to pay us. Uh, one of the groups of patients that I that I never send a bill to, uh, the, the the first responders and the people who worked at grounds. Yeah. Well, so, the reason, uh, we, so the answer is yes I'm expensive but well, I mean but I'm,
0: I'm, not, I'm not specifically even uh, you know uh, uh, whatever accusing you of overcharging or being expensive what I'm what I guess what I'm what I'm saying is that the, the kind of sort of holistic care that you're talking about that everybody who really thinks about health care who's not in it, wants, where you go to a doctor and he thinks, you know, you know, the problem I, 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 I
1: do. It's a, you, you, you know, you know, what's so funny about it. I'm writing a book, by the way, just so you should know right now called Fix Healthcare and the Elder Nation, which is another conversation. And it, it, if you think what I've written is aggressive now, wait till you read it. But I think, I think that there is going to have to be a moment. What, if, you, if you think about it, um, when, I was, when, I, when I was little, my, one of my earliest childhood memories is having otitis meter an earache. And the pain was so intense that I was pinned on the floor under the dining room table, unable to move, clutching my ear and it's sobbing. And I remember the doctor coming at five o'clock, about five o'clock on a Saturday night. And he looked at me and he just pulled down my pants and gave me a shot of penicillin. Okay, now that that doctor was a GP. He made a house call. Um, we didn't, my, my, family didn't believe in insurance at that, at that time. we're talking 1950 blue cross blue shield was available and I'm betting we paid that doctor, you know, 15 or $20 for that visit. So what happened, that was a whole different era of doctors. And then came a whole bunch of doctors who were entrepreneurs. They ran business plans. People don't do reflux testing like I do. He doesn't reimburse enough. But endoscopy traditionally has reimbursed a lot, and now it's going down. The Medicare is going to have an influence. But the reality is that once it was clear that there was a lot of money to be made um, in medicine, it became corporate. And now more doctors work for uh, companies than, than work yeah. in the
0: Do you do – you, uh, is something that you've spent effort on training disciples? Do you wish you'd done more of that?
1: The answer, the answer is um, that, that my stuff is so controversial in the field of otolaryngology because people just don't – I would argue otolaryngologists, the ear, nose, and throat doctors – don't know what reflux is because they don't know what normal looks like. It's so ubiquitous. They don't know what normal looks like. But if they go uh, uh, to a gastroenterologist and the gastroenterologist says, really, I don't see anything, then the patient is stuck. So what I have done, I, I resigned from the American Academy of Otolaryngology, and here's why I did it. I had given the course on reflux for, I don't know, 25 or 30 years, um, the course is, um, was a big course. I mean, it was a big room with a lot of people. They made a lot of money on the course. But in the reviews, one year I said, you all need to be doing transnasal esophagoscopy. And here's why. One of these days, you're going to get a lawsuit for malpractice. And a patient who has sinus disease and postnasal drip is going to get esophageal cancer and you're going to be sued because you never examined their esophagus, and you need to start doing it. And there was quiet in the room, you could hear a pin drop. And so I got some bad reviews, and the, and the people who were organizing the courses, a couple of not friends of mine said, well, maybe we can get someone else to give the reflux course. So the answer is in the field of otolaryngology, which is basically my parent field, Whereas I would I would argue that the the specialty really knows virtually nothing about reflux disease.
0: No, I I, I agree with you. And on a
1: scale of one on a scale of one to ten, it's something between a two and a three
0: yeah i mean i i you know i've had for years you know it's like a family disease and we think we have sinus infections and we're always clearing our throats and it's snoring and it's everything else and i have have hit that wall quite a few times um and that's why i was so interested by your book um talking about just going back to that you being a little girl under the table what did your parents do
1: about what my ear infection?
0: No, what were the what what was your dad's ah, job?
1: I had a I had a very interesting life. My father was a lawyer and he ran a firm in Boston. He started out with with a couple of college people and they went to to and he actually his uh, partner was governor of Massachusetts in the Kennedy McCormick heyday. And so I had a very very interesting life. I met a lot of the uh, uh, and people like the Kennedys and so on in my in my uh, days. So he was relatively wealthy. My my grandfather was a Russian immigrant who became a builder and became very successful. And um, the, uh, the in my family the, the the key for everything was education. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that was the, uh, I wanted to to work for my grandfather one summer, and the response was, no, you go to Harvard Summer School, I'll pay for it.
0: And what about, you know, in your era, how many women were in your medical class?
1: Oh, actually, Boston University was really, started as a women's medical college. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated, uh, Boston University, but no, uh, I, I think it's very interesting. Um, I was a visiting professor at um, in Nottingham, uh, in England, and uh, as I was being taken back to my hotel, I got walked through the medical school, and there on the wall was the graduate picture of the graduating class, starting I don't know fifty or sixty years before, and you'd see you know six or eight men in their cricket outfits. And that was the medical school class. And then you kept walking and the classes got bigger and they were all men and they were all men and they were all men. And And, and only in the last uh, uh, 25 years. And now you go walk to the end of the hall and the class is all women. So I, I said to my host, what happened? He said, well, now admissions is based only on on scholastic scholastic aptitude, meaning uh, it used to be sort of a a men's uh, specialty and women weren't allowed in. And now that it's uh, now that it's based upon academic performance, uh, other women (laughs) seem to be topping the men at least in England.
0: Like the song. That's right. The women are smarter. Um, I'm talking. This is Dr. Jamie Kaufman. I'm talking to the Her latest book is Acid Reflux Diet. It's got 111 all new recipes, including vegan and gluten free. But it's funny because it's like a hybrid. You know, two thirds of the book is a cookbook, but the first third is this really, just like you, a kind of iconoclastic um, and yet infor- informational examination of what's really going on with our diet and how to self diagnose. Um, um, uh, you know, a, a, a litany of problems that are related to what we eat.
1: Let me make a quick, uh, quick uh, uh, summary of the, of the symptoms. One, by the way, one of the characteristics of respiratory reflux is that people have lots of symptoms. So if, if you just have one symptom, for example, if you just have hoarseness, maybe a problem with the vocal cord. But people who have respiratory reflux will have hoarseness, often worse in the morning. Postnasal drip, chronic throat clearing, sticky throat, the sensation of a lump in the throat, cough, um, and, of course, all the other things I've mentioned, things that look like asthma and sinusitis and an allergy because those symptoms get confused. But, you know. People who have this will know. Gee, the night they went out, they ate, They didn't have any lunch hardly, and they just then they packed, and they packed in another dessert because it was sitting there on the table. And then they all sat around and said, "Let's get another bottle of wine." And they and he wakes up the next morning and he knows that something is different and worse, and it does have to do with the diet and lifestyle. Um, The meal.
0: You know, uh, years ago, Mark Bittman wrote a piece, and and you've written for the New York Times, and the piece that I noticed that you wrote, I don't know if this is your most recent one, was about um, stop not eating past 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock at night, closing the kitchen four hours before bed.
1: I'll tell you a funny story about that. It's called The Dangers of Late Night Eating. Mm -hmm. The Dangers of Late Night Eating Was an op-ed for the Times in October of last year, October 2014. Yeah, that piece was among the top ten most emailed New York Times articles for six weeks. It's unbelievable, and and I, I got letters from editors saying this is sort of unprecedented. A uh, fr- friend of mine said I was uh, sitting in, in Australia in the airport in Melbourne, and I heard people talking about this article. Yeah. So, you know, this. let's just talk for a moment about about late night eating or eating late um, and what, what what's the opposite and what's what constitutes healthy. Um, many Americans don't have much breakfast. It's on the fly. They usually have a sandwich that they wolf down at lunch and they don't really have much in the way of snacks. Maybe after work they go you know, to exercise at the gym. Uh, maybe they have child care responsibilities. So maybe they're thinking about their own food. This is a daily basis. This isn't like a big night out. Um, and all of a sudden it's 8.30, and they're in the kitchen starved. Right. That problem is really... Um, and by the way, if you take the same person and it's a young person and they drink a lot of acid, they get up in the morning and they have orange juice, then they go to the workout and they have you know Gatorade, and then they have lunch and they have a, a Coke, and then they uh, uh, they're thirsty and they get a Snapple, and they and so all day everything in a bottle or a can is acidic, so they reflux during the night. There's the pepsin, this enzyme, lying around waiting to be activated by more acid. Which is why dropping acid, right? You want to lower the acid intake. Um,
0: dropping so, acid after, was, the, was the name of your first book. So yeah,
1: that. dropping acid is really you know if you really want to think about these two books, I meant for them to be intended to be uh, uh, companion books. Dropping acid is really the first book, which is the sort of the, the whole story about reflux for for the, for the for the start. What do you do first? And the the second book talks about longevity. If this was a weight loss program, dropping acid would be how do you lose the weight? And Dr. Kaufman's acid reflux diet would be how do you keep it off? Now, I will tell you, I believe that um, what I've proposed in this book is crucial longevity diet information. Lean. Lean. Clean, green, and alkaline. The other thing is I strongly recommend people have breakfast and a snack and lunch and a snack and get three-quarters of their calories for the day in before five.
0: So they don't end up in the situation you were talking about where they're in the kitchen starving at 8.30 and they ralph down an entire pizza.
1: It just takes some planning. For example, when I go to work at the beginning of the week, I lug Avocados, bananas, um, chicken breasts with that, with nice flavorings that have been diced up in little uh, zip blocks. I have uh, 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 some salmon that that's left over, some rice, uh, and 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 fruit um, other fruits. Um, I consider the the three healthiest fats to be um, avocado, olive oil, and fish, particularly salmon. So that those are 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 if you will uh, heavy you know heavy part of my diet. There's not much of a day that does. And by the way, I've substituted olive oil for butter completely. I have a baked potato. I scrape it out. I uh, 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 put liberal amounts of olive oil on it and a little bit of salt, and that's potato.
0: You're making me hungry.
1: It's a good snack. A baked potato. I make an extra one too. Usually, It's leave it in the refrigerator.
0: Well, let me let me just. Uh... So, Bitman wrote a piece. Mark Bitman, obviously the great food writer, um, and uh, about that he had cut out all the milk, all milk products, and that had solved at least his acid reflux problem. I don't know, you know, I know Bitman, but I haven't asked him about this in years. Uh, what, well, he, what, is, what is with milk and acid reflux, or what do you think about his piece?
1: Okay, the answer is um, uh, that everybody's different. So let let me have a conversation. Let me tell you another story.
0: Well, let me, just, well what, let me just let me just throw one other thing in there before you tell the story, which is you know everybody's different, and you know you you talk about being you know you have family in Russia, and so I'm assuming you're you know. Jewish, Eastern European descent. Bittman probably is also. I am also. I mean, and not that there's some conspiracy going on here, but. Um, it, reflux,
1: know, reflux runs in families. We don't know exactly what the link, whether it has to do with lousy valves or more acid or who knows. Or
0: genetics of some kind. It's it
1: runs something. in families, okay. no question about it. Okay. No question.
0: So go ahead, milk, and you were, you were saying.
1: Well, the, the I want to tell you a story oh, because. Yeah. It's it's one of those stories that, that sort of is is, is intriguing, and, and, and it's a two part story because the first the first is a failure and the second is success. So a young woman came to see me. It was twenty eight years old, um, and she was uh, she she weighed about three hundred pounds, uh, but she was tall. She was 5'4". Uh, that's a joke. So she was a hugely obese young woman, and she'd already had bariatric surgery. So she'd had surgery. I'm laughing inside.
0: Baby. I'm laughing inside.
1: She was obese again. And actually, she had reflux. She'd had reflux surgery, and she was refluxing again. And she came to see me because she was asking me what surgery, what I could do to stop her reflux. This was the one who was not compliant. For her, going out in the evening And, you know, shoveling in as much ice cream and other high-fat, high-sugar food she could was all there was in her life. I said to her, okay, what do I do with somebody who has obesity? This is really um, not something that, that, that most people will consider, but many do. So if someone's got bad reflux and obesity, we have to basically treat the reflux specifically. But let's leave that aside and talk about the diet. You read uh, Wheat Belly, and you know that the glycemic index of bread, and Americans have bread, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, cookies, cakes, everything else. The glycemic index... Of sugar, if you eat it out of the bowl, is 59, and the glycemic index of bread is 72. What this means is if you take in excess sugar, you make fat. So there's a lot of bread. So you're going to say, okay, I want to make you gluten free. By the way, that's why a third of the nation is gluten free. They're not all gluten sensitive, but they're trying to get rid of the bread. So, uh, and that's another story. Wheat changed. Uh, this is all in uh, yeah, the – Yes, yes, So anyway, so, so I say, okay, okay, I want you to go gluten-free. Now, if you go gluten-free, first thing you find out is, boy, those gluten-free chocolate chip cookies are great. <laughs> and guess what they put in them? A ton of sugar, real sugar. So you're moving from one type of sugar to another type of sugar. So if you're going to go gluten-free, then you got to go sugar-free too, at least no sugar added. And if you're going to go, then you got to go dairy-free, because what do you leave? You leave cheese and ice cream and all the high-fat foods. So what I do with someone who's got terrible reflux and obesity is I say, how would you like to change your life? I want to put you on a gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free diet for a year. What does it leave? Lean, clean, green and alkaline it means they have to plan their meals we do meal plans where they sit down and they say okay i'm a big fan of the banana right now and the avocado so i'm going to always have you know figure out so that they're getting ripe um you know across the week so i have a reasonable fruit they start to do a little bit of cooking a good example i think is the egg when you restrict dairy we don't restrict eggs eggs are fantastic Every meal is not a delight. So what I do when I'm traveling, when I take the plane back on Monday, I'll have boiled eggs. And what I do is, and by the way, buy jumbo, jumbo eggs because the yolks are the same and all the egg, eggs are getting more white. What I do is I have an extra little baggie. And as I'm eating my egg, I drop out about two-thirds of the yolk. So I like the flavor of the yolk. But I can eat three eggs with a little bit of salt. And I'm essentially having three eggs with one yolk because is cholesterol and fat. High protein kick, and uh, that's a good example of the kind of on-the-go snack that is successful for people. And um, so, go ahead. And so, what you say is, you got someone who's obese, who's got diabetes, who's got high cholesterol, who's got bad reflux, and you ask them, "Can you do this? Who do you want to try to do this?" And a lot of them can, and some of them can't.
0: Um. Uh, one thing I've noticed in your work, it seems like you've kind of become more interested in alkaline water or alkaline water.
1: Yeah, alkaline water is special. Um, if you look at the pH, the pH scale um, for listeners, is, um, is sort of bizarre. Um, it runs essentially from, from 0 to 14, and neutral or not acidic is 7, right in the middle. So below 7 is acidic and above seven is alkaline. So if you take alkaline and acid, the alkaline will neutralize the acid. Now, almost everything um, in a a bottle or a can is pH 2, which is the same as stomach acid, pH 2, pH 3. And by the way, the the, the pH scale is is, um, logarithmic, like the Richter scale, which means two is 10 times more acidic than three and 100 times more acidic than four. So... The only thing that occurs in all of nature that comes easily, that has no side effects, that's not a medicine, is alkaline water. And so water trickles through the ground under caverns, who knows what, for thousands of years and comes up in wherever it comes up. Say they dig a hole in in a place called Louisiana and the water has calcium carbonate and it's become... Alkaline. So, uh, we know some things about this enzyme pepsin, and the enzyme pepsin dies at pH eight. Um, we've done this work in the laboratory, and we looked at alkaline water, and alkaline water kills pepsin. Alkaline water helps wash out pepsin. Alkaline water helps neutralize acid. So, alkaline water is healthy and particularly useful. For the reflux, sir.
0: So why not just not do anything else you're saying and drink you know, a glass of alkaline water every 20 minutes?
1: Well, I don't know if that would work or not. Uh, and, and the question is how alkaline and, the, and what expense. By the way, um, I don't buy it anymore. I have a special filter. That I, uh, 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 one of those uh, it, it looks like a Brita but it's not it's called Cera Water and it's a Canadian woman and it makes alkaline water and, and one little those filters last uh, months hmm. and so I just re- refill that but the, the, how do you spell
0: the, that? how do you spell it?
1: it? it's C-R-R-A water all one word dot com and um and, and, and she's lovely and, and she, it's really a nice uh, and by the way I, the little filter I've I got in mine I, I do pH test it with the pH paper uh, I put in in September and it's still making alkaline water I've washed the whole thing out four times but it still works and other filters if you buy filters you know in the store regular, where they actually make the water slightly more acidic so this is quite specific um, and i just leave it on my desk and uh, that's what i drink um, uh, all the time when i when i travel the the, the bottles the waters that are most available everywhere um, that have uh that are more alkaline are fiji water and deer park um The Icelandic waters are terrific. Evermore water is terrific. Um, And nowadays, there are waters that are being manufactured. Um, Coca-Cola has one called Essentia. They take tap water and they... (laughs) <laughs> manipulate it, and, um, and and actually, I don't, I I, rec- I don't recommend them uh, quite as highly, but they're but the, they're cheaper, and um, the, the reason is there are phosphates and there are other chemicals in them, and, and they bother some of my patients. Let me,
0: let me get into two. Let me ask you one quick thing, and then get into one other area before we, we have to go because uh, you yep. know um, yoga. <laughs> Uh, turning yourself upside down, twisting yourself is this a problem it's something that's occurred to me sometimes I get some symptoms right after yoga, which obviously yeah. is great in so many other ways
1: um, the the answer is your valve's not so good you're going to come see me and i 'll take care of you when, like, <laughs> that valve that valve is fixable um, I recommend taking a product called Gavascon advance aniseed Gavascon. Is available not in this country. It's a political thing. Uh, the brand of Gaviscon that's available in our, our pharmacies is not, is not in my opinion uh, comparable. So you got to get it online, and it's easy to get online. But Gaviscon is not an antacid, and what it does is it gums up the valve in a good way. Mm-hmm. And so um, I recommend that refluxers not eat. Before they go work out or eat light, have a banana and, and then, and then take Gaviscon Advance, uh, before you work out, particularly with yoga.
0: Yeah. Well, yoga, you've got, you can't really eat two hours before. It's one of the good things.
1: Yeah. It. But listen, but let me make a comment to you. I, yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the story gets a lot bigger if you come see me.
0: Okay. Too. i'm gonna take you up on that? all right let me get into just before i lose you uh, one other thing which is um your writing you know because I'm, I'm interested in writing and and you know it's what i do i don't know if you i think you're a friend of a mutual friend um uh, sue shapiro and maybe she helped you how Absolutely. You, how, how did you start to you know decide to put your books together and, and what do you think about as a writer
1: Well, first of all, um, Sue was wonderful. I had great fun. The story is actually quite different. I had a friend who was depressed. And I said, "You need a project, you know, something that meets on a regular basis, um, that just breaks up your week." So we decided we would take a writing class together. So that's how I met met, met her, and um, and uh, she's great. And my
0: was it out have, of, was it out of Sue's class that you developed your? No, book
1: I, I, I I I have a fat curriculum vitae. I've published thousands of pages mm-hmm. and multiple books going back to the seventies. So I consider. But I've always been a writer. I think she made me a better writer. Okay. Um, but um, but, but what, what I was starting to say is I have ADD, and I figured out a really, really good strategy for me, which is that I write by the clock. So I have to sit still for with an egg timer for 40 minutes, not get out of that chair. and then, uh, And then I take 20 minutes off, and then I sit another 40 minutes on my writing days. And uh, so I'm I'm always writing a book, um, and I think that the um, the next book is going to um, hopefully uh, catalyze a national dialogue about our healthcare system, and, uh, and I think it's it's time.
0: I agree. I've uh, been talking to Dr. Jamie Kaufman. The book is Acid Reflux Diet, and I strongly recommend it. And maybe we'll do a follow-up interview after I go get scoped. I'm in California right now, but when I'm, when I'm back in a couple months in New York, um, we will figure out something. So it's such an honor, and I'm, I'm so glad we did have this time to talk. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you to your publicist, Carrie, for, for helping to set
1: this up. Thank you. No problem.
0: This is New Books and Food, part of the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com, where there are interviews with authors on every subject you can imagine. It's a great site. Check it out. To find recipes and other material related to what we talked about today, check out cookbooks.about.com, the about.com website for which I am the cookbooks and food writing expert. My website is alansalkin.com, A L L E N S like Sam, A L K I N. All my social media is Alan Salkin. Also, Instagram, Facebook is Facebook.com slash Salkin. Twitter is Alan Salkin. I think you can find me. Guess what? My name's Alan Salkin. Thanks for listening.